0: Our sermon text this morning will be Romans 8:18 8, through 27 and uh, I've been preaching through Romans 8 and it's been a, a joy for me because Romans 8 is one of my two or three favorite chapters in all of the Bible. I find that it is so rich in its in its picturing of the grace of God, the beauty of that grace. And so it's a joy to come back to Romans 8, and and you might recall that last time we talked about how because of the grace of God, we who trust in Christ Jesus are adopted as sons, and as sons, we are fellow heirs with Christ. But there was a caveat at the end there of verse 17, so we are fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Now, suffering, if you're anything like I am, and I'm going to guess that you are, suffering is not something we enjoy. It is something that we try to avoid, something that we try to get through as quickly as possible when we're in the midst of it. Suffering is not fun, but it is inevitable. That's what Paul has to talk about here in Romans 8, verses 18 through 27. So here now as I read from the holy, inspired word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. <clears throat> our Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the promises contained therein. And we pray that you would apply it to our hearts. By the work of your spirit even now we pray this in Jesus name amen well anybody that knows me knows that I'm a big sports fan and people often ask me I guess because of my size boy when you were when you were in high school what position did you play in football and the truth is I didn't play football in high school there are two reasons one is one is probably Less, actually, this wasn't a reason, but one that would make you less surprised. In high school, I probably weighed about 100 pounds less than I do now. So so I would not have been quite the uh, the imposing figure on a football field that some might think that I would have been. But, but even if I had been as large as I am now, uh, football would not have been a part of my life in high school because I had back problems. And my doctor had actually uh, I, I think, I'm not, I've never been able to get to the root of this, I think he kind of conspired with my mom to say that uh, I was not allowed to play football. And so during high school, I never did play uh, football. And I miss that. I, I regret the fact that I didn't have the opportunity to be on the football team when I was in high school. Now, that being said, there is one part of being on the football team that I don't regret having missed. And that is the part that's going on right now. Not this morning, but, but during these days and weeks, the second half of August, leading into the season, where the season has not yet begun, but the team is in training for the season. Oftentimes, in the heat of the summer, practicing twice a day and suffering and groaning and agonizing through these practices. The reason they go through all of this agony of practicing twice a day in the heat of the summer is because of the, the adage that, that you can't win a championship in November unless you've paid the price in August. You see, there, there's a lot of work that goes into preparing the team to be able to play at a championship level. If they want to experience that glory at the end of the season, they need to pay the price now. There is suffering that needs to occur, but they're willing to pay that price. They're willing to agonize and they're willing to go through that glory because, are through that groaning because they know that there is a glory that is out there that they are pursuing. And so with their eyes on the glory, they're willing to suffer through the agony. Paul says in chapter 8, verse 18 of Romans, for I consider the sufferings Of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul puts it to us here that the way we face suffering is by putting it in its proper perspective. First of all, he's very straightforward with us suffering is real. There are some religions that would tell you that suffering is is just an illusion, that it doesn't really exist, it's just something in our mind. But, But that is not true, that's not the biblical message. Suffering is real. It is painful. It is agonizing. It hurts. And we all experience it. Now Paul's talking first and foremost, I think, about the suffering that comes through the persecution of the church. He's talked about suffering with and for Christ. And so, indeed, that is what we should first look at. It's something that occurs, not only does Paul say it, but Jesus promises that we will suffer for him. In his Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus promises we will suffer persecution. In fact, we who are here, I know for myself this is true, and it is probably true of most of you. We should ask the question, why do I not suffer more persecution than I do? For if we were truly living as strangers and exiles on earth, whose citizenship was truly in heaven, If that were the life that we were truly living, then our lives would feel awkward and different and we would feel out of place and the world would see us following Christ and it would make no sense to the world and the world would mock us. If we are not being persecuted by the world, we need to call into question how seriously we are following our Savior. Of course, persecution is not the only kind of suffering we face. We face physical suffering. We have injuries such as scrapes and broken bones. We have illnesses from a common cold to something like cancer. We experience physical suffering up to and including death. And we also experience mental suffering and emotional suffering. Sometimes that's even harder, is it not, than physical suffering. To watch others go through physical suffering or their own emotional suffering, and if we love them, to watch them go through this causes us a great deal of emotional agony, emotional suffering, mental suffering, mental pain, and that is hard. It is painful. Many of you have watched the suffering of husbands, or wives, many of you have watched the suffering of parents or children and as you have done that it has hurt and you have agonized and I'm sorry that you have experienced that and I pray for you that you might know the peace of God which transcends all understanding that he might come alongside you and comfort you in the midst of it. I pray that it would not be something that would cause you to question God's goodness. But that is something that sometimes we do and that leads to another kind of suffering, a spiritual suffering, where we, we get into a spiritual turmoil where we don't understand how God could possibly be working the way he is. And we question him. And perhaps we doubt. Spiritual suffering can also be the kind of suffering that Paul talks about in Romans 7, where he says, the things I I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And there's a spiritual suffering that comes along with that. And then there's the spiritual suffering that comes with knowing that it is my sin which placed Jesus Christ on the cross. These are all very real forms of suffering. And as long as we are in the flesh, we will suffer. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. It's the realities of life. We will suffer. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, he says that sufferings, no matter how real, how intense, how painful, how, how terrible they might be, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. You see, he, he calls them in 2 Corinthians four seventeen slight afflictions. What kind of things is he talking about here when he talks about slight afflictions? Well, earlier in that chapter, he has mentioned how we are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That does not sound very slight to me. But Paul says that they are slight because they are slight in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in us. They are slight in in scope and the magnitude of them. And they are slight because they are only temporal sufferings that will last for a time, whereas the glory which we will receive will last forever. And so, since that glory is so great and that glory is so eternal, creation itself groans for that glory. And we groan for the glory of God. And the Spirit groans. For God's glory. You see the revelation so awesome. Creation itself, it says in verse 19, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the enormity of this problem of suffering. It's not just my suffering. It's not just our suffering. It's not just the suffering of all mankind. It is the suffering of creation itself, which is in scope. And so we are told that creation waits with eager longing. The, the literal translation of the Greek would be creation waits with outstretched head. The idea of a, of a neck craning so that it can see what is off in the distance. And then we are told that creation waits with outstretched head for the revealing of the sons of God. This is an allusion toward the day of judgment when all will be judged by God. And we will see who is a son of God. God has said, all who trust in him are his sons. Now, there are those who call themselves Christians, who God says, there are those who who call me Lord, Lord. But I tell you, I've never known them. And in this day, There will be a splitting of these two groups. Saying I am a Christian does not make me a Christian any more than saying I am an eagle enables me to fly. I need to trust in God, and I need to trust in the provision for my sin that He has given us in Christ Jesus. I can call myself whatever I want. But in that day, I will not be revealed as a son of God unless I have indeed trusted in Christ Jesus. Creation waits for that day, subjected to futility, we are told. It is broken. The, the King James says, speak, speaks about was subjected to vanity. Uh, the idea there is not, not vanity as in uh, thinking so much of itself, but vanity as in, it is vain. its efforts are vain to accomplish uh, what it is supposed to accomplish. That's why I like this, this term futility here. I, I think it captures the essence of it very well. It is subjected to futility. It cannot do that which it is supposed to be doing. The creation was created to sing the glories of God, and instead we read here that it groans in agony. It's not something that happened to creation willingly we see in verse 20 not willingly but it's a result of the fall you see we as human beings were created to be God's vice regents over creation exercising dominion over creation in a righteous and holy and pure and perfect way but when Adam sinned in the garden we all sinned with him and creation itself entered into the fall As sin entered creation, creation itself fell with humanity. And so it was plunged into an abyss that encapsulates all of creation, not just people, but also animals and plants. The ground itself is under the curse of God. That's what it means here when it says in verse 20, because of him who subjected it. It's not talking about Adam. It's not talking about the devil. It's talking about God. God is the one who subjected the earth to futility. He did it in his curse of Adam in Genesis 3. Verses 17 through 19, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. As part of his curse on Adam, God cursed the creation itself. And it is now subjected to futility. Now God loves the creation, and he longs for it to be put right. So you might ask the question, if he loves the creation and longs for it to be put right, then why did he curse it? Why did he subject it to futility? That makes no sense. It's a good question. But like most good questions, it has a good answer. Donald Gray Barnhouse Once said, this he did in order to bring forth the lessons that all of his spirit creatures could see, leaving the ruined creation as an object lesson to show that there is no path of blessing except yieldedness to the will of the creator and that every departure from that will means death. So next time you are working in your garden, You are doing battle with the weeds that return time and time and time again. Remember what happened in the original garden. And remember your sin. And remember that it is on account of your sin that you share with Adam that the world does not work. And the next time you're watching the news and you see the report of a tornado or an earthquake or a hurricane or some other natural disaster that takes the lives of hundreds or even thousands of people, remember your sin. Remember your sin and know that sin is what causes the world to be subject to this futility. But also remember that when God subjected the creation to futility, this was not the end of the story for there are those last two words at the end of verse 20 says it was subjected. It was because of him who subjected it in hope. What two wonderful words. These are in hope. Hope. You see, the curse of Genesis 3 was given in the context of the promise of Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.15, as God is speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, this is the first promise of the gospel, the first promise of a Savior, Christ Jesus, who would come to put an end to sin and an end to the devil. And an end to death, and an end to all suffering. And this is our hope. This is our hope. Our hope, not just our wish, our fond expectation, but our confident expectation. Hebrews refers to hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And that is what this promise is it is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. And so we see that Paul says in verse 21 that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It is what is coming. It is what the pain leads up to. And it is wonderful. In verse 22, we see that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now you see the great pains lead to a greater joy that is what makes this this such a perfect picture of what is going on <clears throat> i think back to when our first child was born and i remember that that the labor pains for my wife were intense they were painful And yet, there came a day when she desired to have another child. Was it because she had forgotten about the pain? No. It was because she realized that the pain, though it was intense, though it was real, though it was very difficult, it did not compare to the joy that the pain yielded to. And so it is that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so not only creation, but we ourselves, verse 23 tells us, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. The first fruits of the Spirits, it says, it's basically saying our guarantee, our down payment. And we who have this down payment, we who have received the spirit of God from Christ Jesus as a result of our faith in him, that He he has given it to us as a gift, it says we groan inwardly. You see, we don't get to avoid suffering just because we're on the winning team. Just because we are Christ's, we don't avoid suffering. There are some who would tell you that. There were some who would tell you that if you are a Christian and you are suffering, it is because you don't have enough faith. And I am here to tell you that if you hear somebody say that to you, do not believe them. They are liars. For the word of God is replete with examples and promises that you, if you walk with Christ Jesus, will suffer. It is what is promised. In fact, Jesus himself says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This language of the cross is something that we've kind of sanitized in the church. We we put a cross on a table here, we put them on our steeples, we wear them around our necks as jewelry. But the cross was an instrument of death, an instrument of torture. The whole purpose of the cross was not only to kill a person, but to kill them in as painful a manner as absolutely possible. And this is what Jesus tells us to take up daily. Take up our cross. He promises we will suffer. Our groaning will consist of suffering, but like creation, it also consists of a hopeful expectation of deliverance for we wait eagerly, verse 23 tells us, for the adoption of sons. Now you might say, wait a second, I thought this already happened. Didn't we say back last time in verses 15 and 16 that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons and the spirit himself bears witness that we are the children of God. And indeed it does. That is true. There's a kind of an already and not yet sense that work together here. It's kind of like I've got a, a, a friend of mine who adopted a child from the Ukraine. And when he did this, they went over to the Ukraine and they went to the orphanage and they found this child and fell in love with him and, and decided that this was the child they were going to adopt. And they filled out all the paperwork and went through the system and went before a judge and had a legal presentation. And the judge ruled that this, this young boy was their son. They filled out the paperwork. It was legal. It was done. The judge had declared this was their son. They had adopted him. And you know what happens next? They had to wait 30 days before they took him home. And so this son of theirs, who had been adopted, spent the next 30 days living in an orphanage, even though he was their son, legally adopted, he did not get to experience all the benefits of that adoption yet. But the day came after 30 days when they came and took him and they boarded a plane with him and they took him home back to America. And now they live with him there. And he experiences the joys of having them as his parents, of being their child. And so, too, we have received the spirit of adoption. We who are in Christ are legally his children. But we are waiting for him to take us home. Longing for that day, groaning for that day, that it might come. It can't come soon enough. How will we know that day is here? Well, verse 23 says, it'll be the redemption of our bodies. For God's word tells us that God will raise our bodies from the dead even, and we will be transformed, receiving spiritual bodies, bodies which are like Christ's resurrection body. And we will live with him for all of eternity, reflecting his glory. And it is in this hope, verse 24 tells us, that we are saved. Now we hope for this. But who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. And so we wait patiently, perseveringly, longing for that day. But, but that's hard, that's difficult. Nobody likes to wait. And we wouldn't do it very well, perhaps wouldn't do it at all if we were left to our own devices. And God knows this, and that's why he sends his spirit to us. That's why verse 26 tells us that the spirit helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us, we're told, with groanings too deep for words. Some take these groanings to mean tongues or prayer languages, but I don't think that's a wise way to understand this. I think we need to understand these groanings in the context of the groanings which have preceded it in verse 22 and verse 23, groanings of labor and hard work and travail that that are longing for God's glory to be made manifest. I think we need to understand the Spirit's groanings as these same kind of groanings. The Spirit is working, longing for God's glory to be made manifest. And he does this, we're told, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. When you're praying, does your mind ever wander? Do you ever just kind of drift off in your thoughts? Do you ever even fall asleep, perhaps, as you're praying? Do you ever just not know what to pray about at all? I don't know about you. I've had all of these things occur with me far too often than I'd like to admit. I assume it's true of you too. But this is the wonderful thing. When we fall asleep, when we don't know what to pray for, when our mind wanders, the Spirit prays on our behalf according to the will of God. And what does that mean, according to the will of God? Well, I think it means that that oftentimes when we are praying, asking God for stuff and for things and what we want What the Spirit is saying is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You be glorified, God. May it be that your kingdom would come here. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is God-centered prayer that God would be glorified. That is how the Spirit prays in accordance with the will of God. Now, it's all right for us to ask for things. I'm not saying we shouldn't. We are bid to do so by the Lord himself. But I think that as we ask for things, the thing we most need to be asking is that God would conform our will to his. For the Spirit, we are told in verse 27, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That is the way we need to be praying. According to the will of God. We need to not only look like we're doing what God wants, but inwardly we need to be conformed to his will. What a picture of the gospel it is and what the Spirit does here. When we are unable to pray as we should, the Spirit of God Praise for us. He does the work that we fail to do. That's just like the gospel. We long to save ourselves. We long to, to live the holy lives we need to. We long to accomplish the perfection we need to. We long to be good enough to earn God's favor. But no matter how good we are, we fail. I don't know where you are with the Lord right now. Perhaps you've trusted in your efforts, in your abilities, in your own holiness, in your good deeds. If you have trusted in those, then I tell you, you are trusting in them in futility. Rather trust in the work of God on your behalf through the blood of Christ Jesus shed on the cross that it might cleanse sinners of their sin. That is the only way by which we might be saved. If you have not trusted in Christ Jesus, then you are subject to futility, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. Trust in him. If you have trusted in Christ Jesus, This gospel is still for you. Be reminded of it daily. Be reminded of the goodness of a God who died for your sins. Be reminded that he loved you so much that he was willing to lay down his life for you. And let that motivate you to live a life of love toward him and toward others as he has toward you. Either way, it is my prayer that you would experience the grace of, of God, and that your groanings might be turned into glory. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you indeed for the glorious grace that you have shown us. Might you indeed turn our groanings into glory, not our own glory, but yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.